If you would like notes to, to follow along this morning, there were some out in the entry. Now, there's uh, a little difference uh, this morning. I've got, so the sermon notes, which look like this, on the front, there's not a lot, I haven't put the fill-in spaces. It's just got my basic outline to it, so you can follow along, and that's how it'll be. Sorry, I should have said the children can go out, the, the creche. Uh, so you can just fill in your own notes through the outline there. But on the back of it is uh, something you can use through the week, and I've called just a family discussion guide. So just some simple questions that you can use you know, either on your own or with uh, a friend or with your family to talk about some of the issues and some of the things that we, we talk about as we look at some of uh, these people. Now, for some of the younger kids, you know, filling in the blanks and finding all that can be a little difficult, or not difficult, but uh, boring. Uh, so there are some sheets which look like this out there, and if you're uh, some of the younger kids who don't want to fill in the blanks or write notes, um, there's some things just for some of the kids where you can just write down one or two things that you remember about the sermon, and then there's even a spot on the back to draw something uh, that strikes your attention about maybe today as we talk about Joseph, maybe you want to draw his colourful coat or something like that. So just some things a little bit different through the summer as we go through. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 41, Genesis chapter 41, and uh, many of you will have access to Bibles on your phone and things, but if you need one, there's just on those bookshelves at the back, uh, Bibles for you to, to follow along, they're bookmarked at the right, the right place. We are, for uh, the next few weeks, going to uh, spend a little time in a, a series I've called Adventures with God. And uh, what we're going to do as we, we do this over the next few weeks is really we're just going to rehearse some of our favorite Bible stories. So some of the stories that perhaps if you've grown up in church like I have, these are the things that you would hear often in Sunday school or in sermons. So they're familiar ones. We're going to look at some of the familiar people and events along the way and uh, remind us of these things. We're going to do this because partly there are some of us who've grown up in church and these are very familiar stories. But then there are some of us here who haven't grown up in church and maybe come to Christ later in life, and maybe these aren't so familiar. Um, so we're going to spend some time here for both those who are new to it and those who, who aren't. There'll be some lessons to learn as we, we consider some of these great stories of, of God. Now, just by a quick raise of, of hand, how many of you would consider yourself to be adventurous? There's, there's a few, not, not many here ad adventurous. There's a few who would consider themselves adventurous. I, I would say I'm kind of adventurous. I've got a bit of an adventurous spirit in me. But that question, for some of you, um, you know, say, would you like an adventurous life? For some of them, that's an exciting thing. Yes, I would like something exciting and adventurous and intriguing, and, and that makes you uh, full of, of joy and excitement. For others, the very thought of an adventure strikes fear into your heart. Think of all the, the chaos and the, the messiness and the, the terrifying unknown that's ahead uh, and what that might, might be. But as we come and we talk about this idea of adventures with God, the great things about adventures with God is that they are for everyone and they are designed for each one. God has his path and his his work in your life, and he will take you on an adventure that is designed for you in this life with 
a purpose. And so over the next few weeks, I think as you can see on the, the slide behind me, we're going to look at some of these familiar stories. We're going to start with Joseph this morning and we'll look through you know, Gideon and David and Solomon, Daniel, Jonah and, and Esther and look at a few of these uh, of our favorite stories along the way. And as you look at this list and you're thinking adventure, you, some, of, some of these people on this list, some of them had an adventurous life and they, they chose adventure. Uh, David is an example. He was a, a man who had a courageous spirit and, and uh, was a, you know, a warrior at heart. And so there's there. And then for others on the list, some of them you know, find themselves in adventure just by living life and things come upon them. And then others in the list find themselves thrust into a place of discomfort or trial or uncertainty or adventure, much like Joseph will look at this morning. And so that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to talk about Joseph. And the overall lesson we want to look at this morning when we look at this part of Joseph is this. God is making you stronger. God is making you stronger. Now, we're... we're, jumping in here at the end of Joseph's life. And for those that aren't remembering, just by way of bringing us up to to speed, Joseph is one of 12 sons, and the other brothers and sisters that he lives with despise him. He's the favored son of his father because he is the the firstborn son of his favorite wife. This has caused problems and issues and tensions, through his life as he grew up to the point where his brothers eventually throw him in a pit and then sell him into slavery where he ends up in Egypt, a servant of an influential person named Potiphar in Egypt. Horrible events transpire while he serves faithfully there in Egypt to Potiphar and he's thrown in jail. While in jail for uh, things he he has not done, is falsely accused of doing, he meets uh, two men, a, a, a baker and a butler to the Pharaoh, who uh, promise that when they get out, they will remember him. Uh, only one makes it out, and he gets forgotten. And this is when we come to Genesis 41. This is where we find him. He is still in prison, and uh, this is the point where things at least seem to take a turn in his life. At the beginning of of chapter 41, because we'll read the end, the beginning of chapter 1, Pharaoh, the the king of of Egypt, has two dreams. The first dream he has is of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And in his dream, the skinny cows eat the fat cows. And he wakes up startled and unsure about what that means. He goes back to sleep and he has another dream, this time of sheaves or bales of of wheat. Uh, seven of those uh, bundles of wheat are full and healthy and, and have a lot of grain on them. And the other seven are lean and have very few and, and sparse seeds on them. But it's the sparse, lean ones that devour the healthy ones. Again, Pharaoh wakes up stunned and unsure about what this all means. So he calls all of his most wise people and his soothsayers and, and everyone together to find out what these dreams mean, and none of them can tell until the butler remembers, ah, a man told me my dream. He's still in jail, Joseph. So he tells Pharaoh, and this is where our story picks up here in in Genesis chapter 41. We're going to begin in verse 37. Uh, Joseph has come in. 
He has been brought into the king, cleaned up. He's interpreted the dream for him. And verse 37 of Genesis 41 says this. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God has showed these things, all these things, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set, uh, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave to him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities the food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn to the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil, and all my father's house. The name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to learn lessons from the way you've worked in the life of Joseph, we pray that it would encourage us. Lord, speak to each one of us as we need this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Joseph interprets the dreams. The dreams tell Pharaoh, God reveals to him, there are going to be seven plenteous years where there's going to be plenty of crop, plenty of grain growing, and then seven years of famine. Joseph tells Pharaoh, look, if it was me, I'd use those seven profitable years to store up so you have it for uh, the the lean years. And that's exactly what uh, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of doing. Now, as we think about Joseph... For many people, and in fact most of the the books and things you read about Joseph tend to go this way and how we normally see the life of Joseph. We tend to think of Joseph's life like this. We're, We're done wrong, we endure trial, and in the midst of it we do our best to serve God and to to work hard. And through that trial as we try and serve God and work hard, God then rewards our hard work and our faithfulness by making us prosperous and lifting us up. And that tends to be how a lot of people see the life of Joseph. He goes through the hard times, he tries to serve God, and then because of all the work that he's done, God lifts him up, and, uh, and he is prosperous. But the lesson of Joseph's life 
isn't what we often think it to be. It's something different. You know, firstly, it's interesting that when we come to the scriptures, particularly things like Joseph and, and even David, when we look at these, uh, these passages and we're trying to draw lessons from it, why is it that we always see ourselves as Joseph? Why do we never consider that we might be Reuben or Levi or Potiphar? Or as in David, you know, with David, we're going to look at David and Goliath in, in a few weeks. Why is it that when we read those stories, we always assume that we're David? We're never Goliath or cowardly Saul. And that's the first place where we go wrong is we start to see ourselves as Joseph. But there's a number of things here that suggest that this part here where Joseph is finally taken out of prison and raised up to this place of influence and high esteem, there's a number of things which suggest that this is not the pinnacle of God's work that we often think it to be. It's not the payoff that we think it is for Joseph to be raised to the second in command. There's a number of things. You know, even though that Joseph is raised up here and he is second in command, essentially, Joseph is still a slave. He's dressed better. He has a lot more power than he did have, but he is still in bondage to Pharaoh. He is put there at the whim of Pharaoh, and at the whim of Pharaoh, he can be taken away. So at essence, this Hebrew boy Joseph is still a slave, though he is a good-dressed one. While he is there, he marries a pagan woman. Now, whether that's by choice or by coercion, it doesn't say. But either way, we find Joseph in a place here at, at this moment where he is in a relationship which the people of God already knew was not sanctioned by God. He marries a pagan woman. It's interesting also that as you look at this and you consider what happens, and we often look at the blessings that come, but the question we don't ask is, where are the blessings falling here? The blessings are not falling on the people of God. It's not uh, the, the people of God who get the abundance of grain. It's Egypt. Egypt gets all the grain. Egypt gets all the blessings that come during this season. Now, we know the end. We know that, that restoration comes to Joseph and his family. We know what happens because we've, we've read through it, many of us. But if we didn't know the end, and we read to this point, at this point, if we didn't know the end, nothing here looks like God's plan is still on track. Joseph is in a foreign land with a foreign wife and a foreign life. His family who rejected him, is in a land which is about to be completely devastated by famine. So as far as God's promises to the people of God goes, at this moment, without knowing the end, it looks as if God's promises are off track. How is God going to make a nation? How is God going to bless them? How is God going to do this? It doesn't look like it's possible. But God is still working. That's why this is not the pinnacle we often think it is. There is more to it. He is not finished yet. You know, as we talk about this idea of adventures with God, not every adventure with God is thrilling and exciting. Sometimes these adventures, these lives we live with God are just long, hard roads. And that's where the adventure is. 
What does God want us to see? See, the real glory here in this story and in this event is much deeper than Joseph ending up with a good job, with good pay. So why does God lead us down hard roads? Why does God lead us down hard roads? And as you can see on the notes, if you've got them there, I have three thoughts I want to draw out to answer this question briefly this morning. And the first is this, to strengthen our character. Why does God lead us down hard roads? Firstly, to strengthen our character. We know from the scriptures, as it teaches us right throughout, that affliction teaches us perseverance. That is, trials have purpose. Trials have purpose. Joseph's trial at this moment, as he is at the the pinnacle, if you will, of his career, his trial isn't finished yet. God hasn't finished working, neither on the small scale in Joseph's life or on the large scale in terms of his promise for the people of God and for the coming Messiah. Now, it has been two years. When we get to this point where Joseph comes into Pharaoh, it's been two years since the butler who promised while he was in prison to tell Pharaoh or tell someone about Joseph, it's been two years. So he sat in prison for two years with the hope that someone was going to release him because the butler who had ear to the king would tell him. Now, by the end of chapter 41 here, by the end of this chapter, so if we look here in verse 46, it says, and Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So at this point, he's 30, which means Joseph has been away from his family for 13 years. He was 17 when he was thrown into the pit and taken into to slavery. So for 13 years, he has been separated from his family, and he's been living either as a slave or as a prisoner in those 13 years. Now, based on what we know for the future ahead, it's going to be at least seven because of the seven good years, but probably closer to 14 before he will see his family again. So at least seven, probably closer to 14 before he sees his family again. You sometimes the trials that we find ourselves in last for a long time. When we enter trials, we often expect them to be short. We expect them to be here, we'll go through it, and God will bring us through, and it's not going to be long. Who would have thought that on the first day of 2022, we would still be talking about COVID-19? And we're still dealing with the, the long, difficult journey that that has brought in many places. But God designed us, within us, to have a sense of purpose, Within us, in the way God designed us, he designed us so that we look for a reason for things. That's why we search the heavens and why we investigate the world around us and why we delve into how the mind works, because we want to know purpose. God designed us that way to know purpose. We want to be able to make sense out of things and see the reason for how it works, which is why trials especially confuse us, because we don't always see the reason or the purpose behind them but we want to know what it is. James tells us in James chapter 1 where he speaks of it, he he reminds us that trials have a purpose. There is a reason behind them. 
The Bible tells us that God brings trials into our life for a number of reasons, and we see all of these reasons at play in Joseph's life. One of the reasons God brings trials into our life is to test and strengthen our faith. He also brings us into trial to humble us at times or to teach us the value of his blessings. Sometimes he brings us into trial to develop us enduring strength for greater usefulness. But when he does so, when he puts us in trials to to build our perseverance and to, to grow us stronger, he's not just developing patience for a time. So God is not putting us through a trial so that we will learn to endure that moment. He is putting us through a trial so that we will learn patience that lasts. He is doing something long-lasting in us. The trial is not for now. The trial is for now on. He's teaching us something deep, something that changes our character, developing something lasting in us. Perhaps the greatest part of all of that is the idea behind all trials, no matter what the purpose that God puts them into our life. The great purpose is, and one of the great results is, that trials, when we endure them and find perseverance, trials drive us to God. They drive us to God. God uses trials to develop perseverance, to strengthen and to deepen our character. We learn to withstand the pressures of trial until God removes that trial. And as James teaches us, and as we see throughout the word of God, we can, despite what we often think, we can learn to cherish those trials. Paul taught us that in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the thorn in the flesh that he had. He learned to cherish it. This perseverance comes from faith. It grows faith. We look at Joseph's life, and, and the reason we love Joseph so much in part, is because we look at his life and we see how each time he endured the trial, he had faith in God and he trusted. And he moved to the next trial and he trusted God and he kept going and and growing with, with God. But why does he keep coming through these trials so well? Why does he get through the end of one and find himself in another and and be in such a good spirit and still willing to grow? Because he believed God. He believed God. His faith was growing through this. With each moment, his faith was growing. James, as I said before, reminds us that trials are to drive us to God. With each step, Joseph was getting closer to God. Imagine someone coming into Joseph's life and hearing Joseph's story. And Joseph says, you know, when I was was 17, my brothers hated me. Man, that's terrible, Joe. Well, that must have been awful to endure. Oh, yeah, but it got worse. They hated me so much, they threw me in a pit and were going to leave me there to die. Are you kidding? That's horrible. No, wait, guys, it got worse. Instead of leaving me there to die, they took an opportunity to make money off me and they sold me into slavery. You're joking. That got worse. Oh, wait, it gets worse still. I got sold into slavery to a man named Potiphar, and his wife falsely accused me of assault. No way. You didn't, of course you didn't do it. What, What? Yeah, but because of that, they threw me in jail. You were in jail for something you didn't do? Man, Joe, your life just keeps getting worse. 
Oh no, wait, it gets worse. I met two guys in prison who had the ear of Pharaoh and they said they would help me get out and they forgot about me. Man, you just can't catch a break, can you? Your life just seems to get worse and worse and worse. But man, here you are, second in command. Things must have worked out all right. It was a tough road. There was a lot of getting worse before things started to look like they were getting better. With each step, he was getting closer to God and not in some mystical feeling sense. But you could see it in the way he lived. You knew he was getting closer to God because it affected his life. This perseverance is fed by holiness. We're being driven closer to God to become more like God. God leads us down hard roads, firstly, to strengthen our character, and secondly, to speak for him. Verse 15 of Genesis 41, where we're looking at here, verse, well, verse, we'll start verse 14, it says, Then Pharaoh said, sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. God leads us down hard roads to speak for him. And here, as a whole, as, as a whole of humanity, this is where our great predicament is. God does reveal himself. He does reveal who he is, and he does reveal his purpose in this world. Here, God had revealed himself to Pharaoh through a dream. This is a dream like he had never had before. This is a dream not that uh, came because of the sausage he had that night before, but because God gave him the dream, and it was a dream that no one else could interpret. He'd had others come to him and try and tell him what his dreams meant before, but this one completely stumped everybody. Everyone was in confusion about what this meant. They were confused because this was different, because this was God revealing himself. It was troubling. Pharaoh became confused and agitated. Unlike the others, this one is from God, and no one could interpret it because they had no idea about it. God had revealed himself, and today... God still reveals himself. The Psalms tell us that God reveals himself in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God in the firmament, his handiwork. God reveals himself in Jesus Christ. God reveals himself in his word. God has revealed himself to mankind. But think about that. Because mankind and humanity is really in no different state than Pharaoh was. God reveals himself and it causes confusion and agitation and trouble because he can't understand it. Our world is no different. God has revealed himself in his creation and in his word and through Jesus Christ. And our world is still in agitation and confusion about who God is and what he is trying to reveal and what it all means. Sin is the problem here because sin blinds us, sin confuses us. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the natural man or ourselves in our natural state can't understand the things of God because they're spiritual and we are not. 2 Corinthians, he tells us that sin blinds our eyes to see the truth of God. That is our great predicament. God has revealed himself, but we don't understand it. It's confusing and sometimes agitating. And this is where it comes to the people of God as our great privilege. The great predicament of humanity is the great privilege of God's people. Because God can be known. God can be known. Although the Egyptians couldn't understand, doesn't mean that God's will could not be known. The same is true today. You may not know God today. You may be looking at the world and, and looking at his world and, and, and what happened. And you go, it doesn't make sense. It, doesn't, it just doesn't, I don't understand it. But just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that God cannot be known. So as we look here at what happens with Joseph's life, we can complain and we can, and we can see at where Joseph was and say, why didn't the butler remember him and why is he still in prison for two years? If Joseph wasn't in prison now, the butler would have no idea where he would be. Where has he gone? But because Joseph is still in prison, the butler remembers dreams. And I know where he's at. And the butler is able to point where Joseph is. And so as a result, Joseph is able to point Pharaoh to God. God's people declare God's word. Joseph is clear in verse 15, which we read here a moment ago, or verse 16, that he could not interpret the dream. He says, I hear you can interpret dreams, Pharaoh says. And Joseph says, no, I can't. But God can. God can make known to you what his will is. This story, this event, is not about Joseph. When we come to this and our first thought is to look at Joseph and read what it says about Joseph, we miss the point. This is about God. And Joseph tells us that. It's not me. It's God. God is the hero of this story, not Joseph. And so Joseph takes this opportunity to say that God can be known and his will can be known. We are put in this world to speak for God. To make known to a world who does not understand God that God can be understood. That he can be heard. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, we preach Christ. That is why we hear, that is our great privilege in a world in a great predicament. God had a plan. And he revealed it. And he used Joseph to express it. And the same is true today. God has a plan to save his people from their sin. He has carried out that plan in Jesus Christ, dying on the cross to pay for our sin. And he uses his people to express it. So the world can know the purpose of God, to make him known. God leads down hard roads to strengthen our character, secondly, to speak for him, and finally, 
to see his sufficiency. There are a lot of great things in this, this uh, account of Joseph, but this is perhaps my most favorite, the thing I find most precious about this event in Joseph's life. Verse 50, coming to the end of this portion, says, And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. God leads us down hard roads to see his sufficiency. God's promises sustain us in times of trial. Here we see in Joseph, we see a Hebrew in Egypt. Now when, when Joseph shows Pharaoh the interpretation of this dream and how it works and, and what God meant from this dream. We know what happens. Pharaoh exalts Joseph to a great position. But Pharaoh was not obliged to do that. Pharaoh could have just as easily said, thank you, back to prison. He had no reason why he had to exalt Joseph. But one of the things we know from the beginning of Joseph's story to the very end of Joseph's story, because it's repeated often, is God was with Joseph. In fact, in verse 39, even Pharaoh recognizes that. Now, whether he knew it was the God of heaven or not, but he recognizes there is something unique, someone unique that is with Joseph. At this stage, as we said before, Joseph is 30 years old, and it's going to be at least seven years before he sees his family again, which means this. Joseph has spent all of his adult life in Egypt, from 17 to 30. His whole entire adult life has been in Egypt. In many ways, he is more Egyptian than he is Hebrew. He has an Egyptian name. He has an Egyptian job. He has an Egyptian wife, and he has an Egyptian way of life. In so many ways, he is more Egyptian than others, but these are all external. Although these externals show that he has an Egyptian way of life and is Egyptian in many ways, he is still, at heart, Hebrew. He's surrounded by pagans, and he is living in a pagan culture with people who worship pagan gods, yet he still believes God. And he still believes God's promises. Your Hebrews 11, Joseph is one of the people this speaks about, where it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. He still believed God. He is like it says at the very end of that verse, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. There was better to come. Now, while he is in Egypt, before the the years of famine come, we're told here, he has, with his Egyptian wife, he has two sons. Verse 51 and 52 speak to us about those two sons. He has an Egyptian name, an Egyptian wife, an Egyptian job in Egypt, and he gives his sons Hebrew names. Manasseh and Ephraim. Like Joseph, we are pilgrims in this world. And we need to see ourselves like Joseph and the patriarchs. 
We live in this world, but we are not of this world. We are still looking for the promise of God. And even in difficult times, trust God. Believe God. Even, as odd as it seems, learn to cherish the trials. Because God is developing in us something deep, something lasting, something eternal. Because God's work is deep. It is not superficial like a good job. Now, can God provide these things? Of course he can. Of course God can can give us these, these blessings on earth. But that's not his point. God's work is deep. God's grace is immense. The names of his two sons tell us a great deal about Joseph. It shows us his humility and it shows us his faith. Both names are designed to give glory to God. Now, in authority, Joseph isn't thinking about revenge, although it's right at his fingertips. He is acknowledging God's grace in his life. Even though it's difficult, he sees God's goodness. Not because he'd worked hard, not because he'd done his best to be faithful, not because he was clever. Look at the reason he names his children this. Verse 51, he called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God, said he, hath made me. Verse 52, and the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me. God's work is in healing. In forgiveness. Look at the name of his first son, Manasseh. For God, saith he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Joseph had been mistreated. He had been wronged. Yet, here he is, still essentially a slave, still away from his family, And yet at this point, we find a man who is not bitter, who is not angry, and who is not wallowing in self-pity. During all of this time, all of this trouble, God was healing his hurt. The healing, the healing was happening in the hurting. During the affliction, During the trial, God was doing the healing. The trials were driving him closer to God, and in turn, God was healing his pain. We forget sometimes how deeply emotional the pain was that Joseph suffered. God's grace healed his pain. We jump forward in the story a little bit, and we we know that when the time finally comes and he reveals himself to his brothers and he forgives him and we think, what an amazing thing that God has done here. He's able to forgive his brothers now. That was not the moment that is as magnificent as we think because the forgiveness for his brothers has already happened. You see it in the name of his son. He made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. The healing had already happened. The forgiveness was already taking place. 
So when he stood face to face with his brothers, now it was simply a time to take all the healing and the forgiveness that God had done in his life already and express that. And God's blessings are joyful. The name of his second son called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. He's seeing God's goodness. This is a natural progression which happens in life. If we harbor resentment and, and the pain, we see pain and we see hurt. We see selfishness and we overlook God's goodness. But as Joseph was experiencing the work of God in his life to forgive, he was also experiencing the work of God in his life to see the goodness of God. To look past the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and the resentment. Can you see what he says here? For God hath caused me to be fruitful, but that is not where he ends. In the land of my affliction. Where has he found this joy? Where has he seen the goodness of God? In his affliction. He wasn't waiting till after the affliction where he could say, oh, look, God brought me out of that. Now joy. He found joy in the affliction because of what God was doing in his life. Joseph didn't see Egypt just as a place of affliction, but a place of God's goodness. Because Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. His grace is immense. We know many of us, Romans 5 verse 8, but God commends us, shows his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is immense love, a God who loves us when we do not love him. And that grace does not stop when we believe him as Savior, but it gets poured out in abundance. His grace is immense. His grace brings forgiveness in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And his grace brings blessing. Did it ever cross your mind that the pain you're experiencing now may actually be there to heal deeper hurts? That God is developing in you strength to endure for him. You will need that strength of character to be used of God. The payoff, the payoff of God's work is much, much deeper and much more magnificent than a good job or a good house or a nice life. The payoff of God's work in our life is so much better than that. Can God provide those things? Does he provide those things? Yes, he does. But that's not what God is aiming for in your life. He's aiming for something deeper, something more lasting. He is driving you to him to find that he is sufficient, to find your joy not in your circumstances or in your things, but in him. So today, this is the God that I proclaim to you. 
this God who can do far more than you imagine, even in the darkest times. Maybe today you have seen his grace. Maybe as you sit here this morning, you're thinking, this is something I need to know more about. I I don't know this God. God still confuses me. I don't understand what the purpose of all of this, this is. Jesus is the way to understand it. And let us show you that way, that Jesus came and he died to pay for our sins. So that all of this makes sense. Because it all makes sense because God is glorious and grand and eternal. And that is what he is drawing us to. To find that he alone is worth it all. And in him we find deep blessing. And we find great joy. Eternally. So today I implore you to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus if you don't know him yet. And believer, if you do know him, if you are genuinely a believer, keep coming to Jesus. Let him take your sin. Let him take your hurt and your pain and your sorrow and let him heal your life and give you joy. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons we see in the lives of the people you have put in your word. We thank you that in these lives, that in the things that we we see and learn from this, we are drawn to look beyond the person to see the glorious God who is still at work. The same God who was working in the life of Joseph from beginning to end is the same God who was at work this morning. So, dear God, help us to see the great purpose in all that you do. That is, that our eyes would be drawn to look to you. That you would be developing perseverance in us. Thank you, God, that as we see this, we see that you are worthy. And you are worth every trial and every pain. Because your joy and your goodness unimaginable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.